0: Listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 118. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you as always for your time and attention today. If you would like to support the podcast or buy me a cup of coffee, you can go to Warrior Priest at anchor. FM and click the support button. Otherwise, you can share the podcast, link with others, and continue the conversation outside of your car or wherever you listen to this podcast. Today on the podcast, then, as promised, and this is a big moment for me that I actually said we were going to do something and I followed through on it because I don't know about you, but the seven days in between these shows... I read and watch and listen and converse, and it's easy for me to get sidetracked on projects because other things capture my attention. But the past week, not only have I gotten a lot of positive feedback and encouragement about the last episode, but also thank you to those of you who reached out and offered me encouragement as regards not only the podcast, but just The fact that, as I said in the last podcast, I had been struggling, not things happening to me personally per se, but rather things happening around me that were then coming and being put on my shoulders. And I, as much as is possible, strive for transparency and honesty and integrity in everything that I do and say, so that as a recovering addict, I can work my program of sobriety, which includes being rigorously honest with myself and with others. I do not hold back, and since I think out loud to begin with, I don't try to cover my feelings or what's happening to me in a general sense in order to put on a good face, so to speak. I do not think that being false or putting on a kind of false gratitude or happiness or gladness really serves the neighbor. If I'm down, you don't necessarily need to know the finer details of it, or if I'm weighed down by other people's struggles who then come to me to walk with them, I think it's part of the reason that we have become so dehumanized as a culture at present, because we're so afraid to have honest, thought-provoking, profound deep conversations with each other about what we're thinking or what we are struggling with or what we do hope for and we're working towards, what our goals are, what our mission set is. We don't have to go deep into the details, like I said, but to be honest, to be transparent, to honor the other person, as we discussed in the last episode, to show them loyalty in the sense of, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not going to hold back, not try to hide what I'm feeling, thinking, or what I'm going through from you. I don't need to go into the finer details. It's not important or was said to me in confidence, but to be able to share with another person, I think demonstrates that that person has worth to you. And in and of itself, it's a gift to be open and honest with other people, but also it leads us into the, the thought process that we must always judge friends and enemies with the same scales. That there are some friends that I have that I can share almost anything with and they won't judge me, they won't flinch and they don't try to fix my problem or assuage my, my guilt or my fears and anxieties. They simply acknowledge what I'm saying and they respond in kind. And they truly walk with me as my brothers and sisters. There are other people that I am friends with that I cannot let in that far. Not because they wouldn't understand, but because being that open and honest, that revealing to them would actually create a wedge between us. And this goes back to the episode I did on Nietzsche and the whole matter of slave morality and pity. There are just some things that When you tell a friend, it changes the dynamic of the relationship. And you can see it in their facial expression. You can see it in how they look at you after you've revealed something to them. They pity you. They pity that you were abused as a child. They pity the damage and destruction that you endured as an addict. They pity you because of the weight that you have to bear within the vocation and the responsibilities of your life. And so it's not always prudent to be open and honest and transparent in that way with some friends because it's just simply not within them to understand and sympathize. And when that happens and they can't understand or sympathize with you, they pity you. And of course, pity is tied with victimhood. And now they view you as a victim of sorts. And again, that changes the dynamic of the relationship. And so I learned this from my Mexican mother, from Alma, that you have to judge, you have to be critical and discern how far you can let someone into your life in order not to keep secrets, not to guard and protect yourself and not entrust yourself to them, but rather to protect them and guard them from falling into a state where they begin to pity you or look at you differently now because you've revealed something to them. And I'm sure like myself, you have shared too much with certain people and it hurt the relationship or in my case, drove the other person away from me because they had their own struggles, their own weight, and it was just too much for them to have to walk with me and shoulder the burden of what I was carrying. But that's on me. And so today then, coming out of this conversation, this monologue that I had last week with you about honor and loyalty and worth within the Germanic culture, within the Anglo-Saxon warrior ethos, we're going to get into what happened when Christianity came to the Germanic peoples, came to Britain, and also then how Tolkien can be our guide, J.R.R. Tolkien, can be our guide because as I noted at the end of the last episode, I think, Tolkien is the one in The Lord of the Rings in particular, but also in his lectures on Beowulf, which I highly recommend you go read, they're published. He builds a bridge between the old and the new, between the pagan worldview and the Christian worldview, and argues, as I think I'll talk about today, they're not two dichotomous individuated pieces, and one has to give way to the other. But rather, one can be baptized, so to speak. And there are virtues, there are values, there are principles within the old way, the pagan way, that can be adopted and adapted and baptized by the Christian worldview. And since Tolkien is much smarter, much better read and more knowledgeable than I am and much more articulate, we're going to go with him today and let him lead us through this whole thing. But to begin then... We have the Germanic culture, we have the warrior ethos of the the Angles and the Saxons. And when we read then the epic poem of Beowulf, for example, we get this tradition presented to us of kinsmanship, of courage, of seeking glory. But then when these poems come into contact with a Christianized worldview, a Christianized set of values and beliefs there is a clash. There's a conflict, of course, because you have competing gods, competing theologies, and therefore competing philosophies. So you have the Anglo-Saxon age, early medieval England, for example, if you go and watch Northmen, which I loved, my friends loved, but I figured was doomed to fail based on the fact that it came out in 2022 and in the United States in 2022. Everything that the Northmen represents is anathema, in the dominant pop culture of the day. But I loved it because it truly presented paganism in such a way that it wasn't anything other than, how to put it, I became uncomfortable at certain parts during the movie because it seemed so real that I forgot it was a movie. And that's the thing to me, as a sidebar, between the old gods and the new gods, if we're speaking about the non-Christian pantheon of gods of theology the old gods were visceral they were graspable they they had meat on the bones so to speak the new gods the gods of media and again go watch the show american gods or read the book by neil gaiman american gods to understand really what i'm talking about in its in its depth and breadth because the show in particular i think really captures The old gods and the new gods, and the conflict between them. Because the new gods, media, they are the god of a thousand faces and a thousand languages that is ungraspable, has no meat on the bones. It's all virtual, it's all fake, it's all ether. And so there's nothing to grasp a hold of, there's no meat on the bone. They are beyond arbitrary and capricious, the new gods. They are simply nothing. They present us with nothing. They value nothing other than marketing and consuming. Whereas the old gods, such as Thor and Woden, there's something to them. Zeus and Apollo, there's something to them. Even when we read the Epic of Gilgamesh or of Beowulf, there's meat on those words. You can chew on the prose. New gods, there's nothing to chew on. They are the gods of nothing. They are nihilistic gods. And that is why I think it is so difficult for people in the present tense to find any meaning or value or higher things in their life because their gods have no meaning or value. They present nothing higher. It is simply, as I said, a marketing scheme. Whatever sells, that's your god. There's no staying power to these gods. They're constantly transforming and morphing into something new. They're like Dragon Ball Z characters, I'm trying to find that super st- cyan stage, the final boss level, but they can't because there's nothing to them. And because there's nothing to them, when we worship them, when we bow down before the altar of the TV, We become nothing. We become fake. We become less than human. We become whatever is marketed to us in the moment. But in the old days, the old gods, they gave you meaning. They gave you value. They gave you a mission. They appealed to something higher than yourself, a cause greater than yourself. It elevated you. You wanted to reach the gods. You wanted to prove yourself worthy of the gods' attention. So, in the old gods' way of doing things, it was all about seeking glory to get the gods' attention. The new gods only care about shocking you shocking you into buying this, shocking you into taking this, shocking you into getting injected with that, shocking you into watching this. It's all about shock value, which is why it's constantly elevated shocks. Because as soon as you get normalized to, "Hey, isn't this shocking, what you see over here?" Well, now we're, we're habituated to that, and it doesn't shock us anymore. So now we have to up the ante, which to raise our game and shock people with something even more provocative, even more horrifying, even more titillating. But how high can that bar be raised before we are simply numb to everything? I wonder about my children's generation for example, since it just came to mind, the the proclivity of pornography and how easy it is to access pornography today. Well, will my children's generation grow up and be so numb to pornography, so numb to virtually presented intimacy because it's fake intimacy, it's fake love, it's fake sex. They're going to be so habituated to it, so numb to it, that they don't even want to have intimate physical relationships with other people. They don't want to get married. They don't want to have intimate relationships with others. They don't want to have children because they're numb to that, because they've been driven to that by the shock value of online pornography. Because anything you can imagine is available on some pornographic website. Any perversion, any twisted base desire or position that you want to view is available online somewhere. Any fetish you have, it's available somewhere for you to watch for free. But in the end, doesn't that then simply numb us to the realities of everyday life and physical intimacy and emotional and intellectual intimacy? Physical intimacy is the least intimate of anything in our relationships. Yes, I said that. Physical intimacy is the least intimate aspect of a relationship intellectual intimacy that you can actually have a thoughtful conversation with someone that you can be challenged by your communication with another person that you can have profound conversations about life the universe and everything with another person that's intimate you're revealing your innermost thoughts to someone but even deeper than intellectual intimacy is emotional intimacy i'm going to open my heart to you i'm going to reveal to you my fears and insecurities I'm going to reveal to you my vulnerabilities and weaknesses and I'm going to entrust you with them. I'm going to trust that when I show you this, you're not going to use them to attack me, to destroy me, to ruin me. Physical intimacy is just the consummation of intellectual and emotional intimacy. So when we go back then to the heroic ethos, the Germanic cultures, the pre-Christian ethos, it's glory. It's these relationships. It's these kinships that define culture, define interpersonal relationships, and therefore define our theology and how we relate to the gods. But then the Christians come in and say, there is only one God, his, and his name is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who shed his blood for the sin of the world. He was crucified and resurrected. There's only one God. So now all of these other gods, they have to go, and therefore, theologically, the doctrine has to go, and therefore, philosophically, the way of life has to go, and it wants to be replaced by Christianity. But of course, why would you do that? This is your culture. This is your theology. This is your philosophy. This is the way things are. This is the way life goes. So why would I adopt this Christian God who's nothing like Thor? Our Father who art in heaven, the the Father of Israel, the God of Israel, is nothing like Wotan. So why? Why would I convert? And therefore, we have conflicting value sets. Because these notions, these principles of honor and worth and loyalty that were based on these older traditions in the new Christianized cultures of Germany, Britain, well, the Germanic peoples, it was Saxony before it was Germany, they were now outdated and obsolete. They were artifacts of a previous age and therefore less and less relevant to children and grandchildren. So you have grandpa sitting on the front porch, shaking his fist at the kids with their crucifixes, saying, praise Jesus. You kids today, when I was your age, we offered a blood sacrifice you kids today with your praying and your bloodless sacrifices. I don't know where your parents went wrong with you guys. So now we come to Tolkien, who wrote and lectured on Beowulf. He writes about it, that Beowulf, the epic poem of Beowulf, encapsulates the blend between the heathen, noble, and hopeless old days with the new Christian perspective that all men and their works will die and only God is eternal. Hopeless in the sense of, I hope that I've done enough to satisfy the gods so that they'll let me into heaven, Valhalla, paradise, wherever. Well, there's a certain hopelessness to life when, why are you doing this? Well, I hope when I die, I get to go up instead of down, but I don't know. Also, Odin is arbitrary and capricious in how he hands out his blessings and curses. Therefore, worshiping Odin is a rather hopeless pursuit because you're never quite sure. And we'll get to the reason why and get a little bit more into it in a second. But basically, Odin doesn't give gifts, according to Tolkien. And that's the fundamental flaw of pagan gods. They claim to give gifts, but they don't actually give gifts. They give you a gift in the same way that the mob does a favor for you. (laughs) I'm going to do this for you but some point in the future, someday I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask you for a favor, and you cannot refuse me. Well, that's not a gift, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So Tolkien, again, to reiterate, Beowulf encapsulates the blend between the heathen, the noble, and the hopeless old days with the new Christian perspective that all men and their works shall die, and only God is eternal. The Anglo-Saxon societies that were converted, however, were not really ready to erase centuries of tradition that had been deeply ingrained in their culture from the time of their ancestors. So, instead then of abandoning these long-held beliefs of honor, loyalty, and worth, what they did is try to adapt them to fit a new world that was molded by the Christian faith. So, here we go. Here's this conflict now. We have two worlds. But like I said, when you're, when you're asking someone to not just change the way they live their life, but therefore change the God they worship, that's a big deal. That would be if you're not a Christian and you're some other religion, or not even any religion, and you came to me as a Christian and said, I want you to convert and worship my God or goddess, and thereby... Change your entire life and the way you live. That's a hard sell. I'm a Christian. I've invested a lot of time and a lot of effort in coming to know what I believe, understand what I believe, suss out what I believe. I make my living off of it. I'm actually paid. I pay the bills by way of my Christian vocation as a pastor, as an author, as a speaker. So, of course, for myself as a Christian, that's a hard sell. But if I tried to proselytize you and convert you, it's going to be the same in the other direction depending on your beliefs. So some aspects then, some aspects of the old ethos, the old warrior's code of honor, loyalty, and worth were compatible with Christianity and Christian theology. But the old world and the new world philosophies agreed that life and honor are transitory. They're temporary. So there's a point of contact both the Germanic peoples and the Christians agreed. Honor and life are temporary. And it's exemplified by Beowulf. And so, and this is key because I brought this up before in regards to Beowulf when I read Beowulf and and recommended Seamus Heaney's uh, audio reading of it to you, is that when Christian monks got a hold of Beowulf, they baptized the text, so to speak, And so Beowulf actually does make a a turn in the sense of, well, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for the Lord of heaven and earth. That was the monks that did that. They were trying to Christianize Beowulf. They were trying to build that bridge. And so you have the old world, the old gods, the old values, the old warrior ethos, and now this new world This new theology, this new God introduced it to them. New to them, anyways. And Beowulf then exemplifies this when he says that the days of men are fleeting. And so, what is the ultimate goal? What is the mission of the warrior? It is to seek immortality. Well, how do I get that immortality? How do I get the doors of Valhalla opened to me? I have to make a reputation for myself through my actions that are so astounding and remarkable that the gods are forced to pay attention to me and say you are worthy to enter these holes and to sit and dine and drink and laugh and sing and fight with us. But it's all about what you do. Which goes back to that's a rather hopeless way to live because what happens if you die in bed? What if you can't fight? What if you're crippled? What if you're born with a birth defect or a mental handicap? What if you're a woman? (laughs) What if you're a woman and you're not allowed to fight? How do you get into Valhalla? Well, through your actions as well, supporting the warrior, supporting your fighting men. Everybody in the village, everyone in the tribe has a vocation. And if you do it to the best of your abilities and you do it faithfully, faithfully to your tribe's kinsmen, faithful to your chieftain, faithful to your gods, there's a good chance then that you'll go to Valhalla. The doors will be opened to you when you die. But of course, if you can die on the battlefield, that's the best. If you can die on the battlefield and be killed by a famous weapon, remember that was in Beowulf as well. The Frankish warrior was killed by Beowulf. And he celebrated the fact that he was killed by such a glorious sword as Hrunting, that's what you hoped for. That's what you prayed for. But it's so arbitrary. It's so random. If I die in the winter in front of the fireplace from a heart attack, do I go to Valhalla or not? Well, then uh, we have to eulogize him real well and make sure that the gods hear us recount his deeds, his glorious deeds, which by the way, is why we're all pagans at, at heart. All of us are pagans at heart. Does't matter whether you're Christian, Jewish, Muslims or Oastrian, doesn't matter. Why? Go to a funeral and listen to a person's eulogy. I have yet, in let's say 44 years, because I think my first funeral, I was like five or six. in all those years, I've never heard a eulogy, never, never heard a eulogy that did not praise the deeds of the deceased. Even the people that I knew we're not worthy of praise they were just solid brass bastards and no one loved them and yet for some reason at a person's funeral we are compelled from fear and anxiety about our own future and where we're going to go when we die we are compelled even though we may not worship odin we are compelled to speak well of the dead to build them up why is it for their sake not really it's for ours And yet, who are we saying it to? The people in the church or the funeral home or by the graveside that cannot raise us from the dead, cannot open the doors of Valhalla to us, cannot send our soul to heaven? Who are we talking to? Again, in the old days, we knew who we were talking to the old gods. Nowadays, the new gods, they don't listen, they don't have a body, they just float around in the ether. And so we say these things because it's a tradition. It's a tradition we're not even aware of for the most part. But it has no meaning in the moment. And if it does have any meaning to those who are gathered around the casket, that meaning is temporary and fleeting. It has nothing to attach itself to. Because the dead, there's a stillness in death. There's a stillness that when you're holding someone as they die and they let out their last breath... Whoever they were isn't there anymore. And you realize this. And you don't want to touch their body anymore. Not because you're worried about being polluted or contaminated by the dead, but rather it's not them anymore. There's nothing to hold. There's nothing to hug. There's nothing to comfort and console as they breathe their last breath. And that's a hopeless way to die. It's a hopeless way to live after the death of someone that you love. And yet, even within the Christian church, I see it time and time and time again. Even amongst Christians who aren't even aware of what they're doing, it's repeated again and again. That life and honor are temporary things. And only we who are alive can retain and remember and honor and glorify their life. But then someday we'll die too because we are also temporary. And then who will remember them? And more important, who will remember us? As I've said before, the primary reason I do this podcast is for my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. That if they ever want to hear their father, grandfather, great-grandfather's voice, know what I thought or what I believed or what I did in my life, this podcast is that. Which I then cast into the ether. I offer it up as a sacrifice to the new God, media. We all do it. We're slaves to it, which is, as a side note, then why I'm a Christian, because there's forgiveness there. (laughs) But the days of men, as Beowulf says, they're fleeting. And so our primary goal in life, if we are warriors, if we embrace and live by a warrior's ethos, is to seek immortality by building our reputation through actions, heroic actions, good actions, just and righteous actions. But in the new Christian world, the warrior could achieve and would achieve immortality in a little bit of a different way. It's not that I perform heroic deeds for my kinsman lord. I'm not his thane in that sense that I'm doing this for him. But I'm doing it in the service of now God, the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who is Jesus, the Christ, the crucified God, And through my service to that God, I earn admission into God's eternal kingdom. And so these changing theologies, these changing principles of how does one live forever, they're revealed in Beowulf because, as I said, the text was altered by later monks. And so in the text then, Beowulf is encouraged to seek eternal gains in the way of God's portion of honor. That God, the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who is crucified for you, he will honor and respect your faith and your service in this life. So it's not worldly glory that we care about, because our worldly glory, our worldly reputation, and the name that we make for ourselves through our actions in this life, that's all temporary. But the name that we make for ourselves in relation to God, that's permanent. And the honor, then, that he shows us, that also is permanent. And therefore, our reward is permanent. So the emphasis, then, in the warrior's ethos on worldly success, on acquiring material possessions, this is frowned upon by Christian theology. And it's seen as an expression of lust, of wantonness, as they used to say, of pride. Because material objects are given to us by God, bestowed upon us by God, and therefore we don't earn them, but rather they are given to us in the way of gift. So then the individual warrior is what? He's a holder. A holder of what? Of the worth, the warrior. In the old Anglo-Saxon, the word, the worth. Honor, then, is not about the thing that is given to a warrior by his kinsman, Lord. It's not a material gift, not only that anyways, not primarily. But now it's a thing that's conferred upon the warrior by God. And it exemplifies his fidelity, his devotion, his service to God. And in this way now, the man is gvurdida, that is, made worthy. Gevur, There it is. I'm sorry. I, I, that was an umlaut, or a, it's an accent mark. I thought it was actually a part of a d. My bad. Gevur, That is a terribly hard word to say, and it. I think if I had a mouthful of marbles, I could pronounce these better. But I apologize for mutilating your mother tongue. But now it's God who makes us worthy, and it's God who gives us the gifts—not just material gifts, but rather eternal gifts. Gifts that are not temporary. What are those? Well, eternal life to begin with. Eternal honor, eternal glory. So that's the part then where we could build a bridge between these old and new beliefs, these the new and the old world. But then there's the parts of the old Germanic honor codes that don't fit into the Christian ethos. And there's the struggle then. There's the struggle between your grandkids and you. And you can see this play out in the literature then of the later Anglo-Saxon era. Because most of the heroic poems, Beowulf, The Wanderer, The Battle of Malden, they read like elegies of like a lamentation rather than an epic tale that you find in other Germanic and Norse cultures that did glorify martial heroism, that the, the heroism of one who engages in battle with the enemy. Because what are you ultimately doing Am I there to kill somebody? No, I'm there to protect the man to my left and my right, and I'm ready to kill to protect them. And there's nothing, therefore, more honorable than to sacrifice your life for the man to your left and right, which again is exemplified at the present tense during Memorial Day ceremonies at cemeteries. Because I'm the, I'm the military chaplain for those um, services at the cemetery here in where I live at. And every year, the ladies' auxiliary representative steps out and she quotes from the Gospel of John something that Jesus says about himself. But she quotes it not in relation to this is Jesus, but rather this is the servicemen who are buried in this cemetery. And so by misappropriating and misquoting a text from the Bible, instead of applying it to God, we apply it to those who are dead. Which is unfortunate because the conclusion to that text, as it is taken out of context, is I'm going to come back for you. But of course, the men in the cemetery who did sacrifice their life in World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the first, second Gulf Wars, Afghanistan, World War I, and, and all the way back to the Civil War in the case of my cemetery, they're not going to get up. They're not going to come back and, and get you out of the dead either. And so it might be in the moment an emotional word. It might be uplifting in the moment, but that is a temporary moment because the words are applied to an eternal God, not to temporary men and women. And so in that moment, you think you're doing a good thing. You're saying no greater love has a man than this that he laid down his life for his friends. But Jesus is saying that about not only the disciples whom he's speaking to, but the entire world, past, present, and future. And those whom he calls friend heaven is open to them. What is open to me when I stand over the grave of my friend who sacrificed his life so that I might live? The best that I can do, at least in my knowledge and what I've been told, the best I can do is live a life worthy of his sacrifice because I know he would trade places with me in a second. So live a life worthy of his sacrifice. He did that so that you could be here. He did that so you could come home and get married and have kids and find a vocation. He did all that so you could go on. That's hopeless, actually. It's hopeless in the end because it's temporary. And again, I don't say that to demean the sacrifice. In no way am I uh, suggesting or implying that. But I'm saying it's hopeless in the sense of you're going to die too. And so he sacrificed so that you can live. But your life is temporary. His sacrifice is not. He's dead. And dead is permanent outside of Christ. And your life is temporary. The only thing that is, the only thing we can count on that's really permanent, has any lasting power, is death. And to me, that creates a sense of hopelessness then. What's the meaning of my life? What's the purpose? What's the, what, what's the purpose of this mission, if I complete it or not, when all of this is going to be swallowed by time and I will be forgotten and I will be devoured and eaten up and turned to dust? That creates a sense of hopelessness. And so along comes Tolkien then, right? Right? And he sees this old ethos that's passing away from posterity and memory. It's being lost to time. He sees the heroic lifestyles that used to be examples for all of us to live by and to measure ourselves by and to live up to. He saw the old social values that had worth passing away, falling away from our memory. And so in the words of Tolkien, What poems like Beowulf and the Wanderer and the Battle of Malden provided was an image of what the heroic code might have become had it not been replaced with the chivalric code of the coming of the Normans. And so in the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien created a reflection, an image of Anglo-Saxon culture in which the old codes of honor and loyalty and worth were repurposed. Why? So that they could coexist with Christian values in this fictional account that he had created. The Lord of the Rings itself is actually taken from a phrase in Beowulf, in case you don't know, Hringafengel, Lord of the Rings. And therefore, just the title, the Lord of the Rings, symbolizes for Tolkien the old notion of exchanging honor for loyalty in the form of gifts and oaths. Both are another thing that we don't really appreciate or talk about or inculcate in our children anymore. That when you say something, you have to keep your word. Because as I was taught growing up, you're only as good as your word. That's an old value. And I was taught it by old men and old women. You're only as good as your word. And therefore, a liar is no good. A liar has no worth because their words are meaningless and they're meaningless because they show a lack of loyalty. That's why you lie. And when someone's disloyal to you and they prove that to you by lying to you, not only are they worth not worthy of your time and attention and friendship, but they're dishonorable because they've shown they have no loyalty to you. Their only loyalty is to the lie, to the craven getting of things. So in Middle-earth and in the world of Middle-earth in the Lord of the Rings, he he adapts and baptizes these old world theologies and philosophies, removes what he deems to be unchristian, and actually ends up creating a warrior code for the new world. Think about that. If you read The Lord of the Rings, if not, I highly recommend you read them. But I think Jackson captures that in the trilogy, the movie trilogy, as well. But it really shines through in the books, obviously, because you can go into greater detail than you can in a movie. But he simply asked the question, which parts of this old theology, this old philosophy, this old ethos, which parts are compatible? Which parts can I adapt and baptize to fit within the new Christian worldview? And so, yeah, it's it, to me anyways, in my opinion, what Tolkien actually ends up doing is successfully creating a new warrior's code. So, for example, pride, right? Ofremod in Old English, or Ofremod if you prefer to pronounce it in the American. But Ofremod, right, which is demonstrated by characters like Beowulf, often causes suffering for their followers because they're loyal to him. So when you have something like uh, Britnoth, which, same thing. Britnoth, his warriors in the Battle of Malden, they suffered a lot for their loyalty so when the opposing army of Danes, for example, taunted Britmouth, Britnoth, and, and they goaded him, right? We're going to fight fair. Come on, fight fair. And so they goad him. They, they appeal to his pride. Fight fair. Well, how are you going to do that? We're going to give you safe passage across this river, this treacherous river. We're going to let you come across safely. We're not going to attack you when you're in the water or trying to make your crossing. We'll wait. Well, what happened then? Britnath's army was defeated and the death of those that were his thanes was not rewarded. And those who deserted him, they gained their reward. They lived to fight another day. so everything got turned upside down and backwards because his pride was used against him. So then Tolkien uses that lesson that he learns from uh, the battle of, um, sorry, I had a brain fart right in the middle of what I was saying the The Battle of Malden, there we go, Battle of Malden, and Britnoth, he learns from the Battle of Malden, he learns from Britnoth. And so then when we get to the Lord of the Rings with Gandalf's battle against the Balrog at the bridge of Khazad-dûm, what does Tolkien do instead? Does Gandalf sacrifice the fellowship? Is Gandalf's pride used against him? No, he has his hero sacrifice himself to save his companions who show their loyalty to Gandalf throughout the beginning of the first book. So rather than give in to selfishness, rather than give in to pride, Gandalf sacrifices himself. That's a Christian virtue. Self-sacrifice, not sacrificing others. So Tolkien, again, shows his judgment, his condemnation, of the obligatory service inherent in the act of gift giving. And this is, I promised we'd get back to it. Here we go. So in the old world, in the old warrior ethos, the code of honor says you give a gift publicly in order to show the others in the village or the tribe that this man or woman has done something remarkable, something worthy of recognition. And this gift that I give to them is a sign to all that this person is honorable and loyal and worthy of the name that I give to them and how I talk them up and praise them. But Tolkien, in my opinion, very correctly susses out a very big problem with this way of defining a gift. You can't attach a condition to a gift. A gift by its very nature is unconditional, that is, free of charge, no price tag attached. And so Tolkien's attitude then toward the Germanic gift giving culture can be seen in the same work. Because Tolkien sticks with his Christian worldview of gift giving as a selfless act, giving generously without the expectation of being repaid with service. So if someone gives you a quote unquote gift but expects something from you in return, it's not a gift. A gift is unconditional, without limit, without measure. No expectation of anything in return, not even a thank you. Again, we are all pagans at heart. My grandmother stopped sending me birthday cards with money in it when I was 12. Why? Because I never wrote her a thank you letter. To which even at 12 and 13, I recognized, well, then it's not a gift if you expect me to do something to repay the gift. We are by nature made this way. We are transactional by nature. I give you something, you give me something. It's in our law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, where do we get that from? From the scriptures, from the Jewish scriptures, which Christians refer to as the Old Testament. The scales of justice must be balanced. We all know that by nature. Which is why I noted that Nietzsche finds Christianity to be morally reprehensible because it violates justice. How can Jesus die to forgive murderers and rapists and suicide bombers and serial killers and fascist dictators who murdered tens of millions of people? That's not just. It's not fair. They don't get what they deserve. They get forgiven. Along with the woman down the street who lied on her taxes, you're going to treat them equally? Well, for Nietzsche, that's unacceptable. You can see this in Ivan Karamazov and his argument with his brother Alyosha in the novel by Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov, I highly recommend you go and read it. It's the Parable of the Grand Inquisitor. It's available online. We have a very strong sense of justice when we are wronged or when we are right. But when we wrong others and others are right over and against us, all of a sudden, our strong sense of justice begins to kind of curl up in a little ball. But nonetheless, this is how we run things. This is how the world runs. This is how we run our relationships transactionally. I give you a gift, you give me a gift in return, or I'm not going to give you more gifts. And if you're a good gift giver, you also calculate the value and worth of the gift that you've been given so that you can then return a gift of greater or equal value. Well, that's not a gift. Again, by definition, that's not a gift. So the entire ethos of gift giving in Germanic culture is actually wrong at its roots. Tolkien recognizes this, being a scholar in this area, and says, no, you're wrong. And in this aspect, we must bring to bear the totality of Christian theology and the Christian ethos regarding gifts. We must replace one with the other, because a gift given is a selfless act, going back to on the bridge at khazad Doom, when Gandalf sacrifices himself to fight the Balrog. The Bolrog and Gandalf descend into the abyss, into the pit, Sheol. And his sacrifice is rewarded by, he's no longer Gandalf the gray. Now he's Gandalf the white. And he's like Moses coming down off the mountain of Sinai where the people can't see his face because he's radiating God's glory. And they beg him to put a veil over his face so they can look at him. Well, remember what happens when Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn encounter gandalf for the first time after he's become gandalf the white they fall on their faces they're blinded by his glory but it's not gandalf's glory it's god's glory in gandalf and tolkien knows this and for the reader who pays attention and is biblically literate it's immediately oh this is who this is this is what this represents it's the hero's sacrifice of himself for his companions that matters now and therefore the gift also is about self-sacrifice I'm going to give this to you and I expect nothing in return. I'm going to sacrifice my expectations of being repaid and of your continuing service. I'm going to sacrifice all of that. Why? Because I value you. Why? For no other reason than I simply love you for who you are and I consider you to be a remarkable person just because of who you are, but ultimately because of your devotion and service to this higher thing, this God. So then the villain, Lord Sauron, what is Lord Sauron? Well, here's the key thing then for for Tolkien, anyways, and he says this in interviews. He writes about this. I'm not making this up. Sauron is an exaggeration of the old Germanic system of exchanging gifts for loyalty, because just like the mafia, you do a favor for me, and I'll do a favor for you. It ensnares you. So all of Sauron's followers are ensnared. They're trapped. Why? Well, they're really in an obligatory service to Sauron because he gave them rings of power. He gifted them a ring of power. But of course, the ring took control of the bearer of the ring, the wearer of the ring, distorted and perverted their minds and made them slaves to Lord Sauron. So he offers them a gift, but the gift came with a price, which was their soul. So it wasn't a gift. And then you have the heroes of the story who demonstrate the Christian ethos selflessness, humility, and egalitarianism. So again, go back to Aragorn, who I mentioned. He says to his follower, who is, you know, Yomer is totally loyal to Aragorn, and he says to him, Between us, there can be no word of giving or taking, nor of reward, because we are brethren between us, between you and me, Yomer, there can be no word of giving or taking, nor of reward, because we are brethren. So there you go. The Sauron represents the old way, the old Germanic warrior ethos, that a gift given isn't really a gift. It's an obligation. It's, an, it's a snare. It's a trap. But the new world The new Christian ethos says that there is no giving and taking, no reward, because we are brothers. We are brethren, brothers or sisters. And therefore, all that matters is that I sacrifice myself for you and you for me. And we do it not because we're obligated, but because we freely want to. It's a matter of freedom, because a gift given must be given in freedom. Otherwise, it is not a gift either from the one giving or the one receiving. Therefore, it must be spontaneous. And that's what love is. True love is spontaneous. True love is in the moment. And it it is always present tense. That's true love. And therefore, true love does not speak about giving, taking, rewards. It simply says, I love you. And is returned with, I know. (laughs) If you get that reference, salute. And so Tolkien builds this bridge between the old Germanic warrior ethos and the new Christian ethos. He discards what can't hold up to Christian scrutiny and then adapts what can and makes them relevant now to the new world, to the modern world, in a way that, as we said, he created a whole new warrior code for the new world based on selflessness, humility, and egalitarianism. We are equal, but we are equal not in the sense of communists, Equal in the sense of we're all the same, but egalitarian in the sense of we complement each other. Our gifts, our our skills, our attributes, they are complements to us. I love you not because we're the exact same. I love you because you complement me and I complement you. My strength strengthens you. Your strength strengthens me when I am weak. Your vulnerabilities, I will protect and shield you. My vulnerabilities, you will protect and shield me. And why will you do it? One, I will do it spontaneously, but I do it because I love you and I value you and you're worth the sacrifice. And to me, that's the most beautiful expression of love that one could possibly find on this earth. It's very rare also, unfortunately. And so... The values, the belief systems that were found in Anglo-Saxon literature, Tolkien adapted them. Their excesses, like pride, and sacrificing loyal followers for the sake of the greater good, those are removed because they don't fit. They don't fit his modern idea, his modern principles. And so the heroic world of Beowulf and um, Britnath and their companions, they don't need to now be relegated to the distant past. They don't need to fall into obscurity or be lost from memory. They can be remembered and they can be honored and they can be emulated in the present tense. So long as we recognize that we must make corrections, it's not about selfishness, it's about selflessness. It's not about pride, it's about humility. It's not about I'm better than everybody else, so look at me and praise me, but rather about egalitarianism about how we complement each other, how we improve and better each other. And that then gives way to the Anglo-Norman principle of chivalry that has survived into modernity. And Tolkien understood this, and he understood why these traditions still hold us today, why they hold so much power over us. As he writes, they are written in a language that after many centuries has still, essential kinship with our own. It was made in this land and moves in our northern world beneath our northern sky. And for those who are native to that tongue and land, it must ever call with a profound appeal. And that's why I love them. They call to me. They have a profound appeal to me, which is why I can read and reread them and find something new in them every time. They are a remnant of a world that no longer exists. And as I've said before, in a way, I'm nostalgic for that world. But I'm also very firmly rooted in the present tense. And so I appreciate the epic poems. I appreciate the values of those peoples. But even more than that, I appreciate Tolkien, who acts as a translator, as a decipherer, a decoder, and a bridge builder for us in the present tense so that if you don't have time to track down these epic poems, if you don't have time to sit and invest thought in the deeper meaning of these stories, you have the Lord of the Rings. You have these three books. Three. That's it. Just three books. So set that as your mission. Make that your new goal. Read the Lord of the Rings. Get a highlighter out or a pen and a highlighter so you can make notes to yourself. Read them out loud, especially. Especially if you have children or you're an aunt or uncle or you have friends with children. Read them out loud to the children. If you want to do something to change the future, read the Lord of the Rings to children. Teach them the values of selflessness and humility and egalitarianism that is embodied in the characters in The Lord of the Rings. Explain to them why Lord Sauron is evil. Because he doesn't give free gifts, but rather he lays traps with his gifts and captures people and turns them into his slaves. And that's not what a gift is. And that's not what a gift giver does. And then teach them about Gandalf's sacrifice at the bridge of Khazad-dûm. Teach them about Aragorn. Teach them about Sam and Frodo. Because then they have a living, breathing, fantastic set of illustrations by which to hold on to. Because those things have talons, man. And they get a hold of your mind and they stick in there forever. And that's what we need. We need those word pictures, we need those illustrations and examples. We need those bridges in our own minds and in our own hearts so that as our children grow up, they don't grow up to be selfish and prideful and nihilistic. Instead, they grow up to be selfless and strong and humble and helpful and selfless, most of all selfless. So that's simple, right? There's your mission. Read a book. Read it out loud. Read it to your spouse and then have them read it back to you. Read it Volunteer to read it at your children's school. Volunteer at the library to read it for story time in the summer or on weekends. Read it out loud to yourself while you're sitting outside this summer. Take it with you on the boat. Take it with you camping. Take it with you in the camper. Wherever you go, take it with you in your backpack so you can have it with you at the coffee shop or wherever you happen to land. Wouldn't that be cool, actually? Go down to your local coffee shop and offer to read it out loud in the coffee shop while people are just hanging out, drinking their coffee, having conversations. That'd be super cool to do that. I might even try and do that. (laughs) But that being said, that is all I got for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope that it was helpful and useful to you. As always, thank you to my supporters and all those who encourage me. I truly appreciate it. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.